I guess I've never been afraid to to jump into new markets. If it was something that really got me interested, I felt like I'd be willing to spend the time to learn what I needed to learn. That's Jonah Lupton, the founder of SoundGuard. Jonah has spent the better part of the last 10 years launching several brands across completely different industries. From social media software, to nonprofit funding platforms, to white label supplement companies, to industrial manufacturing with SoundGuard, Jonah has prototyped, built, and launched ideas he's been passionate about and learned a ton along the way. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today we're speaking with Jonah Lupton, the founder of SoundGuard, the world's first soundproof paint, a company that took all of his experience to build. Jonah left his job and investment about 10 years ago. Since then, he's pursued his passion and interest, launching and investing in several brands across many different industries. Today, he's the founder of SoundGuard, a soundproof paint company that's taking several years to deliver an innovative new product. Jonah joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what he's learned from launching several brands, what it's been like creating a physical manufactured product, the challenges of bootstrapping, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Jonah, thanks so much for being on the show today. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're excited to have you on to get to learn you know, more about you, your story, and, and what you're currently up to. But before we dive into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Uh, good question. So, originally from the Massachusetts area, kind of grew up on Cape Cod, lived in Boston for a bunch of years after college. I went to Salve Regina University. That's where I graduated from. I did a stint at University of New Hampshire before that and Boston University after that. But my uh, degree is from Salve Regina in Newport, Rhode Island. My major was business management or business administration with a double minor in finance and economics. Very cool. And so where did your passion for you know business and startups, I guess, kind of come from? You know, after college, I did the Wall Street thing. So I worked for Morgan Stanley and Smith Barney and then left the kind of brokerage industry and went and worked at some private trust companies in the Boston area. I was running those for a few years. You know, so I was managing money for wealthy individuals and foundations, endowments, but mostly on the individual side, you know, the families, the majority of my wealthy clients accumulated that wealth as entrepreneurs, as business owners. And I mean, I knew I could make a good living, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe more than that, you know, managing money for, you know, the next 20 or 30 years. But I really wanted to amass a a lot of wealth. And that meant that I needed to start my own business. So after working in the investment business for, I think, eight or nine years, I just picked up and quit one day and knew I wanted to do a startup, but I didn't know exactly what. I'm not a technical person, so there's nothing that I could necessarily build myself. So for my first company, Social Track, I went out and found a couple co-founders, literally off Craigslist. You know, this is back in like 2008. Met for coffee a couple times, you know, did our own legal agreements and started working on this new startup, which ended up failing, learned a ton. First of which is don't find your co-founders on Craigslist. And second of all, don't do your own legal paperwork. So it was uh, it was quite a learning lesson. So you've touched a little on your entrepreneurial journey and transition from the finance sector. Can you dive into some of the startups and brands you've built since then? 
So Social Track was that first one that I mentioned. I think that was back in like 2007 or 2008 and then shut that down. And then my next, I, actually, I went back to, I was still in finance when I launched that. So I was still doing the investment thing. And then nights and weekends was Social Track. That went on for a couple of years, shut it down, went back to finance full time for a couple more years. And I think it was 2011 is when I left the investment business forever. I'll never go back. I mean, as much as I love the investment industry and the stock markets and all that. Like, I just can't deal with the ups and downs of dealing with other people's money. You know, I, I don't mind risking my own money, but it's, it's, it's just a much different conversation when it's someone else's money and it's their life savings. And it's just a ton of responsibility and stress. And, you know, I just me mentally, I can't even handle that. Like it really did keep me up at nights knowing, you know, back in like 2008, 2009, when, you know, we hit the financial crisis and the markets are bouncing around, you know, like I really was having crazy anxiety and panic attacks. So I knew that was kind of the writing on the wall that I need to find something else. You know, the other ventures I've done. So I had my media company. So I had a bunch of developers and freelancers that I worked with, and we were essentially building websites and mobile apps for customers or clients. You know, that went on for a few years. You know, nowadays, there's so many of these build it yourself DIY websites, you know, everything from Shopify to Wix to Strikingly to Squarespace that, you know, the, the demand for web development, it's just not really there like it was 10 years ago. So I think that sort of, you know, we kind of ran out of projects to get our hands on. But, you know, we made a decent amount of money while we were doing it. And then I launched a supplement company. I actually, I've launched two supplement brands. One was our own proprietary brand where we did the manufacturing. And then we had a like an online superstore, you know, where we had, I think we had 6,000 different products from three or 400 different brands. But, you know, when you start doing it that way, your margins are just so paper thin that you really need a ton of volume to make up for it. And then I realized that that was not the way to make a lot of money in the industry. The way to make money is create your own brand and you manufacture your own products, you have your own formulas, et cetera, which is what we did. And then after about a year, I realized, I mean, there was just so much competition. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of supplement companies that are basically doing the same thing. It's so easy to get started nowadays with private label that you're really just a marketing company. I mean, to the extent that you can spend more money than your competitors on marketing is pretty much going to determine your success. I mean, if you can't keep up with them, you're sort of doomed. And, you know, that's what I realized about a year into it, year and a half into it. So then I shut that down. I did my podcast for about a year until I tried to come up with something new. And then that's when I kind of stumbled onto the idea of creating soundproof paint, which is obviously what SoundGuard does now. That's really cool. We'll touch a bit more on SoundGuard later on in the episode. But if you want to go back to your experience launching those first companies, what's your approach to vetting and launching an idea? I'm definitely not very good at vetting ideas, probably not as good as I should have been. You know, I think I get I get in that trap where you find an idea that excites you. It's sort of a passion. It's something that's close to your heart. I think it was my, let's see, 2012, I was out of finance. I launched strive.com, which was the online, you know, supplement superstore that lasted like six months. The margins were just brutal. So I shut that down and I started Causely, which was a online social fundraising website, sort of like what GoFundMe is now, or but really focused on like charities and nonprofits to try to connect young millennial donors with the causes that they could care about or should care about. I think it was a great idea. Like I actually think it might have had legs to it. The problem is it's so hard to build a business, if not impossible, when your gross margins are essentially three and a half percent. 
you know, we're taking money from, you know, we're raising money for these nonprofits and the most that we can charge is 7%. You know, that was the transaction fee. And then half of that goes went to our payment processor. So we're left with three and a half percent. And then after that, you obviously have to take out all, you know, your marketing expenses, your overhead expenses. PayPal's been able to do it. Stripe's been able to do it. There are very few other successful companies that were able to build a business on top of a payments platform like that. You know, we would have had to have so much scale and so much volume to make it a self-sustaining business. And I just realized there's no way I could, you know, I could fund that myself. So I, I mean, and I put thirty or forty thousand dollars of my own money into building the platform and marketing and everything else that goes into launching a company. And I'm mad. I'm still mad at myself. You know, I'm mad at myself for not underestimating you know, those same challenges, vetting the idea better. You know, I went and talked to some charities and they loved the idea. You know, this is going back six, seven years. You know, a lot of charities still were not collecting a lot of money online. So the idea that they would have some sort of an online presence to connect them with those millennial donors, they loved. But I didn't really go to, I didn't really talk to anyone that was in the payment space to get a better understanding of how the business models work and, you know, what makes them succeed or not succeed. Because if I had done, if I had had those conversations, I never would have approached this, uh, not without some serious funding up front. I screwed up on that one. Yeah, for sure. So touching a little bit more on your experience and those learnings and outcomes, what do you see as some of the biggest mistakes first-time founders make? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, there's so many ways to screw up. I mean, I've certainly checked off most of the boxes myself. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, it, any answer I gave would just be so general. Uh, it really depends on the startup and the industry. I mean, it could be, you know, the answer could be capital. It could be product market fit. It could be, you know, their marketing strategy is off. Finding the right talent to build the company with, you know, it could be off. You know, I think in my experience, you know, things that I screwed up on, certainly with Social Track, you know, my first one, it was me and the co-founders. You know, we were all part-time, you know, which really doesn't work. As much as you want to think that you can build a company doing nights and weekends, you really can't. I mean, you have to be focused 100%. You know, we were essentially building an aggregate of all your social media channels and putting it into one dashboard. So sort of what Hootsuite is doing now. So we actually started working on this about a year before Hootsuite launched. You know, and this was this was back in 2007. So Facebook was starting to scale. LinkedIn was starting to scale. I think Twitter had just launched. You know, YouTube was growing. And we were essentially giving you a dashboard where you could see all your feeds and activity and everything in one place. Try to cut down on, you know, having to bounce around to all these different websites. And, you know, mobile apps were barely even a thing back then. So I think it was actually a legitimate concept. You know, like I think it actually had some legs to it if we had stuck with it or if I had the right people with me. Taking on the raw co-founders is just a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, you really do have to be ready to build a company over the next five or 10 years with these people and spend 30, 40, 50 hours a week with them and be willing to sit in the trenches and roll up your sleeves. And, you know, you got to be on the same page with everything. And we certainly were not. Yeah, there's a ton of insights and learning in there. And as you mentioned, with each iteration, you're hopefully learning something new for the next time. And so today you're the founder of SoundGuard. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the company is all about and what really motivated you to launch it? So three years ago, I was living in an apartment in New, uh, North Carolina and was trying to figure out how I could soundproof my walls from my noisy neighbors. You know, I was living in a townhouse. So we had a, a shared wall in the bedrooms and living rooms. You know, it's essentially just like a 
duplicate. You know, if you flipped it over, it's like the same apartment. So, you know, half your walls are basically shared with this neighbor that you don't know. And in this case, they had a bunch of kids and they were always running around at night and being loud. And, you know, sometimes they'd have guests over and playing music and you could hear them. And it was just obviously disturbing. So I did a bunch of research, came up with some options. You know, you can either rip open the wall and spray something inside to help absorb the sound. You can add another layer of drywall. You can hang acoustic panels or mats or any of that stuff on the walls. They look pretty ugly, of course. Some of them get the job done. Some of them don't. You know, most of those solutions, you know, require some sort of demolition, very expensive. The landlord would not, you know, certainly not allow some of those things to happen. And I just started wondering, like, why is there not a soundproof paint or some sort of a coating that you can spray onto the wall or brush or roll and it would block the sound from being able to penetrate the wall? And I started doing a lot of research. And, you know, so I think all the mistakes that I made in, you know, earlier in my career with startups that failed, not doing the due diligence, you know, in this case, through those lessons, I learned that there was no way I was going to try to tackle this problem without exactly knowing what the problem was, what the other solutions on the market were, you know, what are the flaws of those solutions? How much does each one cost? You know, then I went out and talked to contractors and architects and painting companies and hotel executives and apartment owners and residents. And I mean, I talked to everybody that you could imagine. Part of me was a little scared of someone trying to steal my idea, but you know, no one had ever done this successfully before. So the, the chances of me talking to someone that had the, the skills and resources to go steal it from me and do it on their own seemed pretty low. Like it seemed, you know, like a, a risk worth taking. And I really need to know if the market needed this solution and if they're willing to pay for it. And pretty much everybody I talked to said, yes. I mean, if you can come up with something like that, you know, we'll buy it. That's really cool. And so as more of a tech guy myself, what's it actually like creating a physical product like paint? Like what's involved in going from idea through the R&D process and finally, you know, to having a product that's ready for sale? What are some of the biggest challenges in that process? Good question. So coming into this, I knew nothing about paint manufacturing, chemistry, coatings, sound. I didn't, I knew what a decibel was, but I didn't know how to measure decibels or any of that stuff. Like I really was a complete novice or rookie when it came to all of this stuff. So I've had to learn it from scratch, which I don't think is a bad thing. So I had to start at the very beginning of the process. I mean, I basically started cold calling on chemists chemists and labs and certainly finding the right manufacturer is critical. You know, filing patents is not cheap, but obviously in my case, it was super important. But, you know, the R&D process for me was it was painful. I mean, that year and a half that it took to develop that product was kind of scary. I mean, I had no idea if we were actually going to get the formula how much more money we're going to have to spend, you know, if it would actually eventually work, you know, I mean, once you think you have that final formula and you do that mock-up, that first mock-up, I mean, you are just praying that you get the results that you're expecting. Now, obviously our case is a little bit different than your traditional like consumer product where someone's making a watch or something else where you can actually see it and play with it. I mean, ours is a lot more that goes into it. And each of those, just the, the cost of all the testing that we had to do, lab testing, field testing, fire testing. I mean, the list goes on and on. Like it just gets so expensive. So, and I've essentially bootstrapped this company. I haven't taken any outside funding. I still own 100% of the company. Uh, I have a couple business loans, but that's about it. So, you know, I've turned down some angel investors, guys that I really, really respect in their industry. People that have sold their businesses for over $100 million and invested in some, you know, some of these unicorn startups. But right now, I just don't need their money. You know, I've set up this company for success, I believe, and I think we're on the right track and our profit margins are pretty healthy once we get going. That 
that I'm just not sure I want to take half a million dollars from some investor and give up 25% of the company when I think we can grow this company uh, ourselves. Absolutely. And so maybe just expanding on that point a little bit further, since you just mentioned being bootstrapped, what's that process been like for you? Obviously, it's as tough as you mentioned, but what's it like trying to apply that type of strategy to this kind of innovation and market? Uh, it's miserable. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the last two and a half years have been just one long sacrifice. You know, I walked away from a very, very successful investment career where right now, if I'd stuck with it, I'd probably be making three or $400,000 a year, you know, living in Boston, living in nice apartments, driving nice cars, all that stuff. You know, when I decided to start this company, I mean, I put my entire life on hold. I basically sold off everything that I own. Um, I, I moved back to my parents' house. I started working at a bar five nights a week so I could have some cash flow and then and not have to touch that business loan for anything personal. But I couldn't find a day job because that's what I needed to start. You know, I was working on Soundguard during the day and working at the bar five, six nights a week. You know, it was four or five, six nights a week, depending on the time of year. So, I mean, to answer it was it was miserable. I mean, I have not, the last two and a half years have been absolutely brutal, depression, anxiety, broke as a joke. But in the long run, like I believed it'd be worth it. I believe that all that sacrifice would eventually pay off, that I had a great idea. And it was just a matter of, you know, being patient and waiting until that final formula was ready to go. And it took two and a half years, you know, way longer than I would have expected. But I am feeling good about where we're going, feel proud of myself for where I, you know, what I've been through. I don't think most people could have taken it. I think most people would have thrown in the towel, you know, well before, which is too bad, you know, but I, I can't blame them. You know, I don't have a family. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage, none of that stuff. And I think once you have that stuff, your ability to take risks, drops down in a meaningful way. If I'd had a wife and kids and a mortgage, there's no way I could have spent the last two and a half years putting all of my money into this company. I would have been a bad husband, a bad father. So you know, I'm, I'm sort of blessed, I guess, that it's just me. I'm not afraid of failure. You know, like I, I've, I've said publicly, most of my previous startups were failures. I think only one of them was actually a success. You know, I only one of them actually did about a million dollars in total revenues. All the rest were well below that. But I think the one thing I'm good at is shutting things down when they no longer have any potential, or at least I've proven to myself that's going to ride it out. And I think too many founders fall in love with their ideas and their companies, and they stick with it for two, three, four years before they finally shut it down or give up. In most cases, that is just, they're doing themselves a disservice. I mean, I think the earlier you shut it down and move on to the next thing, the better off you are to when people fall in love with their ideas when it's the wrong idea. So pushing that last point a bit further, based on the companies you previously started, was there any hesitation in terms of shifting from these other industries that you were more familiar with into physical manufacturing with a product like Soundguard? I guess I've never been afraid to to jump into new markets. If it was something that really got me interested, I felt like I'd be willing to spend the time to learn what I needed to learn. You know, like you said, whether it was supplements or whether it was software or I mean, what else I did, you know, nonprofit fundraising. I mean, you know, all the other crazy ventures that I've done over the last 10 years. I mean, almost every single one of them was in a different industry. So, you know, I, I don't mind burying myself in research and reports and blogs and all the stuff that I have to, you know, go through to try to become an expert. You know, like I said earlier in the, in the episode, or in the interview, I mean, when getting into this, I knew nothing about manufacturing or paints or chemistry or decibels or STC ratings or wall construction or any of that stuff. I just knew that there was a need for a solution. And if no one else was going to solve it, then I was going to solve it. And as long as that solution or product was affordable and effective and kind of checked off all those other boxes that I talked about, I knew the customer would pay for it. And I mean, so far they've, you know, that's proven to be correct. 
So coming back to some of the challenges around this type of industrial product, how do you acquire some of your first customers? Also, what's the sales process like for this type of product? It's a challenge. I mean, I knew it would be. You know, we're doing our best to get as many conversations started as possible, plant as many seeds. I mean, anyone that's been in sales knows that it's a numbers game. You know, our product is not a traditional it's not DIY by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's not an easy sale. Uh, it's not like you can go buy it off the shelf at Home Depot, go home on Saturday morning and put it on the walls yourself. I mean, there's, especially when you're dealing with B2B, you know, there is a tedious sales process that goes along with it. So, you know, first we have to make contact, we have to educate them on the benefits of soundproof paint, you know, what they can expect in terms of results. You know, then I have to send someone over to the property to take a walk around, make sure that, you know, they're a viable candidate for our product. Then I have to get a painting company over there to provide some bids. And then we have to come there in most cases and do a mock-up, you know, because, you know, we're still an unproven product and an unknown brand. So I can't expect a hotel to spend two or $300,000 installing our product unless we've actually proven to them that this is a, you know, a solution that can fix their, meet their needs. So I have to go there with all my sound testing equipment and we do a couple rooms for them, which we call a mock-up. So, you know, they can pick any two rooms they want as long as there is a common or shared wall between the rooms. You know, we'll take all, you know, move all the furniture out of the way. We'll spray both sides of the wall. You know, we'll do testing before and after and then provide all the data back to them, you know, their architects, their engineers, whoever else wants to look at it. And then from there, they can decide if they want to use us or not. And that all takes months and months and months. I started calling on hotel properties in New England because that's where I was living at the time in Massachusetts. Just started calling on general managers at hotels, asking if they had a problem like this, you know, if they got noise complaints from their guests. And I finally found a hotel down in Mystic, Connecticut. I think it was like my seventh or eighth call. And he said, yeah, he said, it's our biggest problem. This hotel was built 30 years ago. The walls are super thin. They're not insulated. You know, hands down, it's the problem that we have, you know, TripAdvisor, bad reviews and all that stuff. I'm like, well, listen, if I can come down there sometime in the next month, you know, I'd be happy to paint your walls for free. And I'll bring an independent acoustical engineer to do all the testing. And we can determine together if this stuff is actually effective. So we set everything up. I hire the engineer. You know, the way that they run these tests is they play white noise, which is like static at 95 to 100 decibels in the first room. And then they take readings in the second room to determine, you know, how much noise is coming through the wall. And in that first test, you know, the untreated wall starting at about 95 to 100 decibels, they were getting about 75 decibels coming through. And then after he ran the test the second time, after the product had been applied, the decibels were down to about 55. So we actually knocked out about 20 decibels, which is absolutely incredible. And I mean, when you walk into the room, the difference between 95 to 75 down to 55 is extremely noticeable. You know, 55 almost sounds like a completely silent room. If you got close enough to the wall, you could hear a little bit of noise coming through. I mean, you knew that there was something in the other room, but it wasn't very clear. But then you go back into that room while the music, well, it's not really music, like I said, white noise, while it's still playing at 95, and it hurts your ears. I mean, it's really uncomfortable. So the fact that our product you know, the wall plus our product was able to take it from a very, very obnoxious 95 decibels down to a completely or almost dead silent 55 decibels, you know, blew me away, blew the general manager away. You know, I think even the engineer was was extremely shocked because he's been a engineer and a sound consultant, I don't know, for 25 years selling other types of soundproofing products. And he could not believe that a product this thin on the wall was able to get those types of results. That's really exciting. So you've taken us through a ton of challenges, as well as the foundation you've been able to lay over the last year or so. So what's next for you and SoundGuard over the upcoming months? 
So, you know, we're hiring some more sales reps. I probably should mention this a couple minutes ago, but yeah, we are doing a lot of digital marketing. So I've hired a PR firm. I've hired a digital marketing agency and I've hired a separate agency just to help with email. We'll do probably a press release every other week. I have a team that's helping me get into, you know, have stories written in Forbes and TechCrunch and all those nice publications. And then we're going to be doing a ton of Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, Instagram, AdWords on Google, SEO, of course, you know, there's a ton of content that we want to create. So we really can't wait for our customers to come to us. We have to go find them. But one thing I, you know, that's worth noting is, you know, we are not a competitor to any other large paint company because our product is really just a base coat or a primer. It is not the finished coat. So in many ways, I think we are going to be a perfect ally or strategic partner for companies like Sherwin Williams and Benjamin Moore because they don't have anything like this. They do not have any sort of a soundproofing product. You know, they their bread and butter is their, you know, their paints, their colored paints, their top coats or finished coats. And we're essentially creating more demand for those products because the hotel or the apartment building or the condo building or your house or any of these other opportunities for us, maybe those projects would have happened in three years or five years, but now they're happening today or next month because of our product. I mean, we're creating new demand in the market, which is going to benefit all of these companies. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited to see what 2018 has in store for you and the SoundGuard team. Thank you, man. I think the one thing that scares me the most is hiring. You know, historically, I've never really had to do a lot of hiring. I've used freelancers. I've had co-founders. I've been the solo, found, you know, the solo employee, I guess. You know, my supplement company, it was just me and then some freelancers. You know, with this company, in order for us to bin, build something large and successful, I'm going to have to do a lot of hiring. And I would say that's the one thing that scares the shit out of me is picking the wrong person. You know, right now I'm looking for a director of sales, someone that can help me manage all of these opportunities and the sales reps and the leads go to trade shows with me, stuff like that. And, you know, that is a critical position at the company, you know, especially in our early days. And my biggest fear is that I picked the wrong person. (laughs) So, you know, as, as exciting as it is, it's also nerve wracking too to think that there's still places you can screw up that could completely derail the company. Yeah, definitely. That's a big part of entrepreneurship, that drive to solve problems you've never faced before. It's probably why we all do this stuff and stick around with it time after time. But on a different note, what are some of the most recent apps or tools you've checked out for either yourself or SoundGuard? We're starting to get into Slack a little bit. I think once we start growing our team, we'll, we'll some of these communication apps, you know, productivity apps, things like that, like Trello and Asana, you know, I think they'll be a little bit more valuable to us. But right now, the company is basically me and 65 sales reps and then some freelancers and digital marketers and people like that. But, you know, I use DocuSign a lot, you know, Gmail the most, Skype the most. But in terms of like third party apps, Probably, I mean, we use HubSpot and Pipedrive for our CRM, Uber Conference and Skype for calls, Grasshopper for phone. And then there's a lot of other apps that I have installed on the website, you know, to help us track things. You know, I love I love What Runs, which shows you can go to any website and see what they're running, you know, as their tech stack, which I think is super helpful. You know, I'm starting to use the something called Lead Feeder which shows you, you know, what websites or what basically who's been on your website. So, you know, now that we're doing all this cold email, it's important for me to see, you know, who's coming to the website, how often they're there. So obviously Google Analytics and stuff like that is super valuable. So do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to leave other entrepreneurs with out there? 
I mean, I think the one thing that I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to find a good mentor or a couple advisors that have been through this kind of thing before, have scaled a manufacturing company. I know I have faults and flaws, and there's a ton of things that I don't know. So the sooner I surround myself with people that do know the answers to those questions, I think the better off I'll be forward. And I just think I, I need to learn. I think I need to be willing to be open and honest with the things that I don't know and you know, put myself in a position to to find those answers. So, you know, that's a long way of saying that my advice is, you know, once you figure out which market you're going to be in, go surround yourself with people that have been in that market and have made mistakes in that market and can try to teach you what not to do. Absolutely. Well said. And I think that's some super valuable advice. Jonah, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was awesome having you on. Absolutely, guys. I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.